0: Okay, happy Purim, everybody. It's Thursday, March 17th, so that's St. Patrick's Day and Purim. So there's a joke in there somewhere. Um, if you think of it, let me know. Uh, the Torah portion this week, which is not what we're going to focus on, because we're going to do some Purim, some Purim Torah, some Purim study, uh, is Parshat Tzav, uh, which is the second Torah portion of um of uh, Leviticus and definitely one of the least uh, brilliant uh, for in terms of interpretation portions as it describes um, uh, how Moses dresses Aaron and his sons in all the vestments and then uh, um, uh, 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 initiates the anoints them. Anyway, we're not gonna talk about that today. We're gonna talk about Purim and to lead into the teachings about Purim, oh, yes, you can drink double on, oh my goodness, it's St. Patrick's Day and Purim. That's right, that'll be a lot of drinking. Um, wow. So, um, um, what I wanna do today is I want to talk about, I thought, okay, many of the most the, the the home territory of Hasidism was in the Ukraine, what is today the Ukraine. And the Balshemtov uh in his adult life lived in Mejbudj, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, which is in what was it, Podolia? I think is the region. And that's where
1: my, my father's family is from. Podolia, oh, really? Kamenets Podolsk or Podolia, the same, the oh, south. Oh, so land. that's my teachers. North, northwest of Odessa, and it doesn't look like there's a lot of fighting there now because it's all forests and trees and little villages, but mm-hmm. who knows?
0: That's where the Baal Shem Tov preached. And that was the origin of Hasidism. When the 17th, uh, the mid 18th century. And so I thought, and so some, many of the most famous Hasidic masters from the uh, 18th and 19th century were from what is today Ukraine. Levi Yitzchak of Berditchev. And uh, then of course we've talked about Menachem, Nachum of Chernobyl of all places was a student of the Baal Shem Tov. Of course, Reb Nachman of Bratslav was a grandson of the Balshemtov, and Tov. And uh, that, all those are in Ukraine, along with many, many other uh, famous Hasidic teachers. So I'm going to give a kind of long run-up and you'll see why this is a Purim teaching for me and I hope for you as well. Oh, thank you um ellen just shared rabbi ellen just shared a map this is is
1: rabbi art green and some people from hebrew college took a pilgrimage um to ukraine because Art rabbi art green's work has been with the hasidic masters so here's you Uh bratslav and uman
0: uman is hold on Uman is where, Nachman of Bratslav is buried in Uman.
1: And here's which
0: That was, that? that was the Balshemtov's Shem uh, base. And Berdicev. Levi Yitzchak of Berdicev. And Yosef of Polonia. I don't remember who the Rebbe um, of was.
1: And Hanukkah. is Pol is uh, Zusha and I forget his brother.
0: Mm-hmm. Elimelech, hmm
1: And Ternop.
0: Chernobyl. So, Ternop right up here.
1: Yeah. Chernobyl. You know, right. The, uh,
0: That's why it was uh, attacked first by the Russians coming in from Belarus. Right. Up there. Now, in this time, of course, um, the Jews lived in this whole region, but also over here. Uh, um, I'm going to talk about that. OK. Uh so here's yes uh, should i take it down uh not j- just for a second not yet okay. um uh it's important to note the black sea uh which leads through the Bosporus straits by istanbul and out so the the black sea and the crimean peninsula uh uh were crucial areas for um shipping ukraine was known as the breadbasket of europe still is um so anyway, uh, okay, I take it down now. Thank you. Okay. So I want to talk about the art uh, a bit about. Uh, I was studying on the history of Ukraine. Maybe you've been reading this as well, um, and like so much, like almost all of Europe, and you know, by extension, most parts of the world. The the destructive and bloody warfare that characterized the his, characterizes the history of that region is shocking, so much so that it's really the eighty years, almost eighty years since World War II ended, uh, that is the exception. Uh, in that in that part of Europe, but what I wanted to share is that the area that's known as Ukraine. Um, is at um, is it a, a really uh, kind of point of tectonic tension because um, uh, back in the um, say 1400s, 1500s, um, at, prior to that Constantinople was the seat of the Byzantine empire and the Eastern Eastern Orthodox Christian world. And North of the Black Sea, the Ukraine was in its orbit in its embit, as was Russia. That's why the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church are separate from the Roman Catholic Church. Meanwhile, the Roman Catholic Church in Rome, Poland was in its area of influence, Poland right next to Ukraine. So there was that Conflict between the Roman Catholic Church and the the Orthodox Church of the East, but once the Ottoman Empire conquered uh, uh, Istanbul in the mid 1500s, there was a huge pressure from Islam had coming this way. So there were these I'm call, these religious forces in the Middle Ages were as much political forces as they were religious forces. There was no there was no distinction in that sense between them. And the Jews who had been, the Jews in the 1400s and 1500s and 1600s who were steadily being pushed out of Western and Central Europe, expelled, found open arms among the the emerging Polish nobility. Poland was not, was an emerging power in the 1500s and 1600s and eastern europe was like the wild west it was forested it was it was not highly developed and so the jews could find, the jews who had been kicked out of um uh, it, it regularly expelled from different uh, western and central european countries found haven among the in, the, in this essentially less um, domesticated uh, part of Europe, which was Poland and East because the, at the height of the Polish kingdom, they controlled most of what was now then became Ukraine. And one of the three ways Jews could get charters to live in these areas was by becoming tax farmers. there the the Polish nobility uh, w- w- essentially leased out their land to sharecroppers and all kinds of, you know, uh, the, the people who lived there didn't own the land. The Jews were given the, the charter to go rent the land and then they would pay the Polish nobles and take their cut. And so in addition to the class, to the intense anti-Semitism of the Christian Church, there's that famous economic uh, reality that the Jews could only find uh, a pl- places to be by being the middlemen of the um, uh, the ruling class, the only class. And so they, we, their hate, the hatred of the peasants toward the Jews would only grow. Um, a uh, pretty toxic uh combination. The middleman role? Yes. Um, these were nobles who were essentially uh, feudal lords. They controlled territory. They didn't, they would then lease the right to farm tax to collect taxes in these territories from the various people using them to not only Jews, but many, many of the people who took this role were Jews because Jews were only permitted to live in different kingdoms in medieval Europe by the um, pleasure of the the rulers. And so they took what they could get. And as such, they could get charters. They could go move into the Polish wilderness, collect taxes. Uh, They were also brought in to bring trade. That was the Jewish skill set. Right? They were literate. They, they could then also be the suppliers of the peasants. Yes, they were the middlemen in all those ways, but the richest of them were the tax farmers. And when someone had a tax farmer, then a community of Jews would come in and form around that economic base. Um, I hope that kind of makes sense, Marsha. Uh, then the Jews were responsible who had this charter, or if they weren't Jews, anyone who was a tax farmer, that they had to supply X amount of money to the nobility. And then they could keep if there was anything left over. So it was in their interest to tax heavily. And so none of it's pretty, right? Um, But I don't wanna spend the whole hour on that. What I wanna say is that in the 1600s, a uh, Ukrainian nationalist named uh, Smelnytsky who is known as the founding father of Ukraine, gathered a lot of energy to kick because the Poles were not only economically um, 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 sucking off the Ukrainian population, but uh, they also were Roman Catholics. And were imposing Roman Catholicism on these Eastern Orthodox Christians, and so there was a nationalist uprising under Khmelnytsky in the sixteen mid in sixteen forty eight, um, where he, for temporarily at least, um, uh, with the Cossacks, who were this category of Ukrainian w- w- warriors. Along with Tatars, who were another ethnic group from the Crimean Peninsula, pushed the poles back in the process it was gruesome and there was there was a there were it was it was not there was nothing about this warfare that was uh civilized i mean it and perhaps half the Jewish population was slaughtered for the Jews it was considered a calamity on par with the great calamities of Jewish history, the Jews of Poland. So for us, Smelnytsky is a relative of Haman in Jewish collective memory. Whereas for many Ukrainians, Smelnitsky is the one who fought back and created Ukrainian identity. His, His Cossacks failed because Russia to the East swooped down and took the Ukraine, took the uh, Khmelnytsky Ukrainian and the Tatars into the Russian sphere. This was in the sixteen late 1600s, which explained to me why Eastern Ukraine has so much Russian influence and why Putin wants Eastern Ukraine more than anything because it's part of the Russian speaking motherland. Uh, it's like, okay, I get it. We're dealing with hundreds of years old conflicts here. I'm giving you this background. You'll, you'll see why. Uh, let's see. Gail says, I've read that the Jewish population was so reduced that it created a genetic bottleneck. That is entirely possible. Uh, I haven't read about that, but that makes sense to me. What it also so during this back and forth between this was also the end of what would be called the golden age of uh, Jews in, er, in the Polish kingdom. Because that was a a time when the Jews were really thriving as a community and growing in this wild west of Eastern Europe under the Polish uh, uh, flag. Poland never recovered either. Um, And the war, you know, the beat just goes on and on and on. With with that in mind, uh, what I wanted to share was in Jewish history, this catastrophe caused as most Jewish historians think, an incredible amount of despair and messianic longing like save us. Is this the, are these the, the pangs of the end of time? I mean, it was that horrible. And a sort of a, so a messianic end of time expectation. The most famous example of that, who came, who just within decades, or even less, of these massacres, was a man named Shabtai Tzvi, who lived in Turkey under Ottoman rule, but who claimed to be the Messiah. And there was a a fervent kind of um, Upwelling of uh, messianic uh, fervor, not just in the uh, Ottoman Empire and the Jewish, um, in in that part of the Jewish world, but also across the borders in Poland and Ukraine. And is this it? Is he the Messiah? There's been a lot written about Shabtai Tzvi. He wasn't the Messiah. (laughs) Um, But life was terrible, terrible for the Jews in that area in this period. A few decades later in this, in say the seven, around 1740, a uh, healer and wonder worker, Yisrael, uh, uh, the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov means the master of the divine name. And uh, there are many Baal Shem Tovs in Jewish history. A Baal Shem Tov is someone who is understood to have tapped in to the divine healing powers by in typical Jewish fashion, by being able to utter the divine name in just the, in, in, you know, because in Judaism, creativity is attached to speech because God says God speaks and the world comes to be. So if you can, the most famous story of speaking God's name is the Golem story in Prague where uh, the Rabbi Marl of Prague um, uh, is able to speak the divine name in such a way that animates the lifeless matter, right? So a Baal Shem Tov is someone who was, I suppose, a miracle worker and a healer. And this Baal Shem Tov, is, he's called the Baal Shem Tov because he was the most famous in Jewish history. So he's just called the Baal Shem Tov. And his movement, the Hasidic movement that he started was based on his teaching, essentially, and this is where it ties into Purim, that what God wants from us is joyous service. There had been an upsurge of intense ascetic practices after during this time of catastrophe naturally you know what have we done wrong uh it, you know how do we sanctify our misery how do we you know I mean it's hard for me to even imagine how miserable the, the life of the Jewish inhabitants of this region were um for a long period of time and uh so there was a a big a, a there was a um an intense trend towards somberness, according to the sort of, how shall I say, broad strokes of popular history? And the Balshemtov appealed and created a, a movement, a what you'd call a Jewish spiritual revival movement in that region as he told people, no, God wants you to dance. God wants you to rejoice. God wants you to um, um, be full of life, you know, and it's all in the context. It's a spiritual revival. So if you can picture a spiritual, tent meeting in our American history where everyone is like uh, shouting hallelujah and singing God's praises, um, uh, and uh, raising the roof with their joy, uh, that's what Hasidism was for the Jews of Eastern Europe. And it's it, as you may know from the history, it spread like wildfire. Um, as uh, um, as as Jews reached for that, and Purim, um, Purim being a festival of rejoicing, of happiness, of um, forget your troubles and get happy, uh, all of that, that God wants our, God wants our joy and our rejoicing. Uh, I thought that given what's going on in Ukraine currently, what the Jewish history is in Ukraine and that Ukraine was actually the fertile seedbed for this joyous Jewish spiritual revival that we'd look at some of the Baal Shem Tov's teachings on joy for a little while today, seemed to be the right right thing for me. Um, Now I'll say again, it's important to distinguish between Hasidism today and Hasidism in its origins in the mid 18th century and its heyday for the next 50 or 75 years. Um, Because again, in broad strokes, as modernity in other words as the modernity being the modern idea that there can be a that there's a secular existence and that religion should be relegated to a lesser position than it had been all throughout the middle ages and the modern nation state starts imposing Uh, starts imposing on these more traditional feudal and uh, church-based power structures, it also threatened the integrity of religious communities. And so Hasidism, which in its time had been within the context of the Jewish world had been a spiritual revival movement, actually uh, in the 1800s, joined forces with its opponents in the Jewish world who were known as the Mitnagdim, which means opponents, who, who thought that Hasidism was uh, dumbing down Judaism and uh, make, you know, that not everybody, you know, that, that, that Hasidism was a populist movement in the Jewish world. The Baal Shem Tov, as you'll see from his teachings, encouraged people to serve God with whatever they had even if they weren't a Torah scholar. Yet the Jewish power structure was based on Torah scholarship. Hasidism didn't reject Torah scholarship, but the Baal Shem Tov says, hey, you can be, it was a, 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 a sense of immediacy. You can be with God right now, right? But by the 1800s, both the more um, yeshiva-based um, opponents of Hasidism, and the Hasidic um, uh, movements uh, had a common enemy, which was modernity. At that point, I think it's fair to say Hasidism changed into an insular and um, extremely conservative uh, movement. Um, And so, even though if you study Hasidic teachings today, they're still studying the same teachings that I study of the early Hasidic masters. Theirs is in the context of a a highly insulated and um, um, uh, regimented effort to keep out the modern world. And uh, uh, so I, I just want to explain that, which is to say that, as my teacher Art Green, who is one of the greatest popularizers of Hasidic thought in the larger world, uh, has 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 taught us that that the the teachings are the teachings are central to my Jewish spiritual life, but again, I'm on a very different path than contemporary Hasidic. Uh, um, communities are obviously, but we're studying the same teachings. Um, okay, so let me share my screen and share some Balshemtov teachings in honor of joy and in honor of Purim and in honor of our ancestral history in the Ukraine. Here, I'm just gonna, this is a not really nice article on Chabad, uh, dot, uh, org. is it .org, .com, Chabad.org. Um, I found this to be an excellent article. I'm gonna go down to number eight. So the Balshem Tov, like many uh, charismatic leaders um, and founders, didn't actually, his teachings didn't get, he didn't write books, but people would write down things he said, taught and said. And this book, Tzava'at HaRivash, uh, is a collection of uh, teachings and stories attributed to the Baal Shem Tov. Here is a classic Baal Shem Tov teaching. Don't get carried away with excessive details in everything you do. This is your evil impulse working against you. It intends to agonize you by insisting you haven't fulfilled your obligation just to make you depressed. Depression is a reprehensible attitude, the greatest obstacle to serving the creator, blessed be he. Okay, so when the Baal says, don't get carried away with excessive details in everything you do. For Jews, everything you do is the doing of mitzvot. So as you know about Jewish law, keeping kosher is a very, very detailed undertaking that can overtake. You can lose the forest for the trees so fast keeping kosher. Well, what did, did I mean, doing this right? Is this the right food to eat? Or Shabbat. Or, uh, I mean... Uh, what you know, so in the observance of mitzvot, which is the Jewish way of living, you can get obsessed with excessive details. We all we, everyone, every one of us has heard this critique and rejected it uh, here in this room. However, the Balshemto, remember, the Balshamto was leading a spiritual revival movement um uh i'll answer your question in a second david while Shemto was leading a jewish spiritual revival movement that doesn't mean he was inventing jewish spirituality it means he was reminding everybody of what's all over the torah right i mean just read the psalm here's one of the psalms he loved to quote the most uh um, no isaiah here here's a passage from isaiah uh, for you shall go out in joy and be led home in peace. And before you, mountains and hills shall shout with joy and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Anywhere you go in the prayer book, anywhere you go in the book of Psalms, all over the prophets, even in the five books of Moses, you will find passages that make it clear that we're supposed to serve the creator with joy. Psalm 100, serve God with joy, come before God with happiness. So the Baal Shem Tov wasn't inventing this, but picture a devastated, compressed, decimated Jewish community in need of reminding. Okay, this is another phrase you should know. So, in the 60s, our famous 60s, um, as people as spiritual revival movements started illuminating, transforming people's lives, there was also a Jewish spiritual revival movement in the 60s. Makes sense, right? 20 years after the Holocaust? Picture the Chmelnitsky massacre, it's like, how are we gonna revive our spirits? And so as with any, as with any um, uh, venerable culture, you're constantly trying to renew the core, the joyous core of the culture. Ultimately, this renewal movement became known as neo-Hasidism. Do you think Rabbi Zalman coined that term, uh, Rabbi Ellen?
1: I would guess either Reb Zaman or, or Reb Art.
0: Art Green, probably. I, um, so Neo-Hasidism describes the spiritual, juicy spiritual teachings that I have been offered and that I offer to you. It's not Hasidism, but it's got the same intent, right? And I should define for you also that Hasidism comes from the word Hasid, a chassid is a lover of God. So it's a bhakti movement. It's a devotional, passionate movement as opposed to other classic pathways to the divine, to serving the divine. Uh, David says, could one make a comparison to the Baal Shem Tov and Jesus? In the sense that they both led spiritual revival movements within the Jewish world. Um, uh, Um, 17 centuries apart. So uh, that comparison is probably apt. I personally wouldn't try to go further than that um, in terms of lining them up. Uh, However, in terms of this rhythm of, um, we, we have our moment of inspiration, then we try to enact it. And as we're living it, because we're humans, We lose track of what animated our activity in the first place. And then somebody comes along and says, don't you remember? This is why you're doing all that stuff. This is what's supposed to animate you. And we wake up again. So that's the rhythm of human life. You know, for all of us, it's like, if God forbid we encountered a serious illness or the death of a loved one or a near brush with death, that sort of thing wakes us up and said, now why was I here? why am I doing this life? It's the human thing. And we're we're always in this sort of ebb and flow of spiritual awareness and awakeness. Um, So the Baal Shemta was talking about getting obsessed with the details of serving God because the purpose of the mitzvot, the commandments is that they're commanded to us by God. So we fulfill the mitzvot By fulfilling mitzvahs, we are doing our Jewish, that's the Jewish lingo for serving the divine. But people get carried away with excessive details. Wait, did I put the, did I tilt the mezuzah just right? How am I supposed to do this? This is your evil impulse working against you. The part of you from the Walshem Tov that wants to bring you down. And the down and up metaphors are the fundamental metaphors of this. It brings you down, it, it weights you down, and it you lose your spark of joy. That is supposed. To, that is what God really wants from us, to animate each act we do with the joy of service. And again, I know this sounds like many spiritual traditions because it's all the same in that regard. Different vocabularies, different different metaphorical and imaginal systems, but the fundamental impulse is to serve God with joy. So depression in Hasidism in particular is the greatest obstacle to serving the creator. So even if you stumble in sin, don't wallow in misery. That would destroy all that you've accomplished so far. Rendering you an easy catch for the evil impulse. Since you feel you are a lost cause anyway. Your divine service would fall apart. I don't think we have to do too much translating uh, of the Balshemtov's Shem Tov's, uh, language to, to identify with why people might've been drawn to him. Because uh, I am. <laughs> Uh, let's see, Gail said for many of us, it's not exactly the details, but the amount that we're not doing enough. Um, and Marcia says, interesting versus wanting to do it right, a strong impulse. Yes, wanting to do it right in a way that compresses us and compacts us. And Joan says, I'd rather dance than discuss. Yes, let this discussion Um, again, remind you that the Jewish tradition is not an enemy of your joy. And that's why we're having the discussion. Uh, The Chabad article, yes, uh, let me post that link. Hold on a second. Copy. Paste. Hey. That was easy, okay. Um, the reason I need these discussions because as a rabbi is because we Jews are so predisposed by our, by our painful history and then the things that our, uh, our, our, our oppressors and our tormentors have said about us for centuries and centuries that we believe somehow that it's Judaism itself, our this beautiful spiritual heritage of ours, that's responsible for our pain. And so we turn ourselves away from Judaism. So I want to have this discussion so that so that we can bring to the surface and to awareness the extent to which, and I've been doing this my entire time as a rabbi, the extent to which the external pressures and horrors of anti-Semitism have conditioned us to think there's something wrong with us or with Judaism, and that we have to turn somewhere else to have joy. We don't. It's all right here. What we have to penetrate is the pain that's been imposed upon us but the pain has not been imposed on us by Judaism. The pain has been imposed upon us by an oppressive structure that has told us that we're we're bad and wrong. Um, Just be saddened over the sin, ashamed before the creator and plead to him to absolve the bad you've done. In other words, don't just skate over your misdeed. That wouldn't be the Jew. That wouldn't be. That's not how Judaism says it. You have to do teshuva. You have to do repair. So do it. Do the repair. Empty your heart out before God. Um, re- reform your ways. And then get back to rejoicing. In the creator, blessed be He. Since you thoroughly regret what you did and have resolved in your mind, never to do foolish things like this again. Even if you know with certainty that you haven't fulfilled your obligation in some area because there were so many obstacles, don't let that get you down. Consider that the creator, blessed be he, examines all hearts and innards. God knows that you wanted to do things as best as possible just that you were not able, and then strengthen yourself in joy in the Creator. May God be blessed. I'll come back to this article, but I'd rather look at your faces. Oh, Blaze says something else we have in common with blacks. Yikes, uh, Blaze, we have so much common cause, not just with Af- not just with African Americans but with any group that's been oppressed because the dynamics are the same. The exact formula and recipe of what we're blamed for, how we're taught to think about ourselves is different based on time and place and status. But yeah, people, I mean, I don't need to go any farther than sexism. And the amount that I've, the the best I've done try to understand how women doubt themselves and their power because of an absolutely um, an effort to make an airtight system of the oppression of women to understand the dynamics of oppression. Uh, And in each case, we need to see through the sham and know that we are a child of God. There's nothing as Baal Shem talk, nothing wrong with us. Uh, uh, that what's wrong is the way that we've been treated. Uh, Rabbi Eln said, Rabbi Art Green says that Hillel Zeitlin and Martin Buber wrote in the neo Hasidic spirit in the first half of the 20th century. Ah, yes, they did. Um, what I was talking about, neo Hasidism bursting into the general Jewish consciousness is a product of the 1960s uh, and the spiritual revival movement that, um, you know, took the baby boomer generation by storm. Um, Is which book by Art Green plays? The one that Ellen
1: is holding up. It's an anthology uh, oh, okay. print, uh, published in 2019. Um, Thank you. Part one is roots, roots and I bought the book, The Branches.
0: Ah, okay. Feel free to put that into the chat uh, uh, if you want, Rabbi Ellen. So wasn't that quote from the Baal Shem fantastic? <laughs> um, what it made me think about in our experience, um, Marsha, let me get that. Let me let me uh, look at that in just a moment. Um, is Yom Kippur right? Yom Kippur as the epitome of the Jewish experience, a day identified as a day of fear and trembling, weeping, terror before the divine throne. It's like, those are all aspects of Yom Kippur. But the Hasidim would finish Yom Kippur the Balshem Tov's followers, they'd finish Yom Kippur, and then they would dance into the night. Why? because they were forgiven. Have you ever, those who've attended our high holiday services, we start dancing at the end of Yom Kippur because we fulfilled the cleansing purpose of the holiday and we are released. And yet the weightiness and the constriction of Jewish oppression that we took on ourselves, how could we not? makes Yom Kippur feel like the epitome of the Jewish experience, right? And who wants that? And that's another, I'm trying to give, trying to come up with analogies that might be within our memory and experience of what to even greater degree, what it might've been like for um, the the, uh, Jews of uh, Ukraine and Eastern Europe in the 1700s. Uh, now, Marcia said, can you talk about the need for a scapegoat for all groups in all times and the badness of certain groups as absolutely accepted? Yeah. Um, almost without fail, we identify ourselves with the in group and consider the out group to be uh, the other, either a threat reprehensible or you know I I, I personally think it comes from our uh, our identity as primates and the way we the way we create social networks with our brain chemistry and our ability to you know for also for the cause of survival and there's all kinds of reasons but we do it and uh, yet we have this ability at times individually or collectively to transcend it and so because, like we're, you know, so because we can transcend it, we wonder why we can't transcend it all the time. For me, the religious and moral quest is to hold that capacity for transcendence front and center in my consciousness and make the realization of it my goal. Uh, but I don't have great great, that doesn't make me an optimist. <laughs> But it makes me a happy human being um, to be serving God in joy that way. Uh, because you know, I don't. In our lifetimes, we're not. We don't know what we're going to see next about the human capacity for selfishness and for hate. We we don't know. Um, and yet, we have this other capacity, which for me is the heart of the spiritual impulse: is this awareness that somehow transcends our our group in-groupness that lets us recognize something so much greater rather than taking the 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 inspiration of this divine inspiration and then trying to push it down back into our in-group uh uh which for me is um a desecration of god's name um Deborah Berger says, makes me think about Emma Goldman saying, I don't wanna be part of a revolution where there is no dancing. Thank you, Deborah. Cynthia, an example of that psychic way. I never knew growing up that the purpose of cleansing at Yom Kippur was to prepare for the abundance of the harvest at Sukkot. I didn't find that out till I got to WJC. Why didn't we learn this in Hebrew school? Right, well, I think The most immediate why was that you're going to Hebrew school in the wake of the Holocaust. Um, And we were, the adults were just gasping for air on some level and saying, we have to not die. We have to keep this alive. We have to pass it on to the next generation, right? All of it that felt like an imposition and a burden on the children instead of a joy and that sent us all scurrying for the exits. That's not the whole answer, but I think that's a big part of it. And then as we came of age, we had our own spiritual awakening and some of us turned back to Judaism to to revive that. Um, I think this is good Purim Torah. uh okay oh thanks rob i think i'll share one more teaching that's very purim related from the bal shem this is a pretty famous story here it is the talmud tells the story of rabbi Barucha, who stood with elijah the prophet in the market and asked Is there anyone here who belongs in the world to come? Okay, let's unpack that language. So it's from the Talmud. So this is from, oh, the third, fourth or fifth century, this story. Okay, so it's way earlier than the Baal Shem Tov. It's in the Talmud. And in the Talmud, Elijah the prophet and throughout Jewish lore, for thousands of years now, Elijah has been shuttling between god and heaven, heaven the heavenly realm and the earthly realm and uh, so when, in many stories when a rabbi is having an ins, a divine inspiration it, it's they're meeting elijah and hearing what elijah has to tell them make sense so so rabbi Baroka says looking out at the marketplace anybody here meriting the world to come in other words Who are the the people who are truly doing God's work here? Elijah pointed out two brothers. So Rabbi Baraka ran after the two brothers and asked them what their business was. They replied, we are jesters. The Hebrew word is badchanim. We are jesters. We make sad people laugh. And when we see two people in a quarrel, we use some humor to make peace between them. The Baal Shem Tov was perplexed by this story from the Talmud and asked his divine voice for an explanation. And this is what the Baal Shem Tov was told. Was told this is the answer that he, that he channeled, right? These two jesters were able to connect every matter they saw in a person to its origin in the higher world. By doing this, any harsh heavenly decrees upon this person were automatically annulled. But if someone was depressed, they could not make this heavenly connection. So they would cheer him up with some humorous words until that person was able to make all the connections necessary. So the jesters were doing holy work because they weren't just making people laugh. The jesters knew that their job was to lift people's spirits so that the people could once again have their energy flowing in connection with the divine. Respect to the jesters. It says, Joan, it's the perfect story for Purim because the holy work of Purim, here, I'm going to take this down now and I'll just... uh, I can end with these words. The holy mystical work of Purim is understood to be that you raise your spirits so high, and this is why another word for alcohol is spirits, because drinking and, and purim are all connected um, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, but you don't have to use, you don't have to use drugs to do this. Um, that You raise your spirit so high, the tradition says, that you can't distinguish between Mordecai and Haman. Meaning that even the realms of of dualism, good, bad, which we need, right? But there's a level beyond it, it's called the 50th rung of the ladder, higher than Haman's gallows. there's a place and the tree of life is also considered to have 49 rungs. And the 50th rung is the place where if we go so high, all dualisms merge and there's only unity. It's from that unity that we draw our true insight and strength. And so if we're depressed, we cannot ascend the tree, if our spirits lift, if we're laughing so hard that we forget our troubles, nobody's our enemy right then. There's, we're all, we're just laughter, right? So laughter is one of the ways to attain that transcendent joy and That's what we tried to do last night at Purim. Kind of aerate ourselves. Lift off the lid of depression. Thank you, I was really happy about it. Laughter yoga, that's Purim. And it worked, it worked. So we have fulfilled, I was so happy because we fulfilled the uh, mitzvah of Purim, we lifted our spirits in a way that allowed us to reconnect with the energy of life. Every holiday has its own um, recipe. Passover's in a month. That's a different kind of connecting than Purim is. But the purpose is the same. The purpose is to. Serve God with joy, no matter what the holiday, no matter what the the activity, what the effort you're putting in. But we can't do it, as the Baal Shem taught, if we're too compressed, too compacted, too depressed. So we need to allow the air of laughter to, to expand, aerate, And open ourselves up. And that's Purim. Thank you for letting me share that.